Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Uh, Welcome to the Living Free Show on 3CR Community Radio, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, traditional owners of the land from which 3CR transmits people-powered radio. Hi, I'm Bill, and each week on the Living Free Show, we showcase one of the 12-step programs that assists recovery from drugs, alcohol, gambling and food addictions. Our guests share their recovery story and highlight that shared experience saves lives. I'd like to say a quick thanks to all those who subscribe to the show. Thanks to your support. We really appreciate it. Uh, I'd like to welcome Rita to the show. Uh, hi, Rita. Hi, Bill. Rita's a member of Allen and Family Groups, and she's going to share her journey of recovery from the family disease of alcoholism and how Allen and Family Groups has helped her to cope with the effects of someone else's drinking. So, Rita, we usually talk about, you know, your life and growing up and the things that influenced you, you know, your family, your school and stuff like that. So what was your early life like? Well, you know, just an ordinary suburban um, childhood in a sense. I grew up in about the 60s and 70s and I was um, the middle child of three kids. Very average suburban family in that sense, although my parents were refugees from the Second World War, so there was a little bit of difference there. So, yeah. Yeah, which makes a pretty big impact. So did you have trouble making friends? No, I didn't. Um, I always had good girlfriends. Um, Didn't get into the boyfriends and stuff until, you know, well, about 16, 17. Um, But, yeah, always had good girlfriends. I did notice, though, that I I did have a couple of friends that, looking back on it now, I probably had a little bit of rescuing kind of tendencies you know, trying to help them and stuff, even though we were good friends. No, I always had good girlfriends and, you know, other extended friends like friends of siblings and things like that. So, yeah. Okay. So it's a very strict at home? It's a very good question, Bill. <laughs> yeah, look, my parents were lovely. They were really beautiful people. Um, but well, they were quite progressive, I think, in some ways. But in other ways, my father was very... Uh, strict he was very angry a lot when we were kids Uh, that got better as he got older a little bit but um, as when we were kids he was explosively rageful and that was very that was probably one of the biggest issues for me personally um, was that I think I was quite a sensitive kid and uh, my auntie has told me later on in life that she because she saw us a fair bit, she saw me as a sad, sorry, shy and sad child. That was huge when she said that because um, it was the first person that had ever said something to me that really validated how I was feeling on the inside. There was just none of that ever really before that, short of, you know, going to therapy and stuff. And she knew me as a kid. So it was great seeing that prima facie kind of, You know, she was a witness. So that was really, really validating. So I was. I mean, I had a happy childhood in lots of ways. Um, But I think I was sad and shy. When I was about eight, I remember feeling like um, I didn't really want to live anymore and made a kind of pathetic attempt at doing something about that. 
but that's probably the far and when I was really young I thought I'd been put on this planet by some aliens or that I was adopted and that sort of you know feeling quite alienated from my family even though it was obvious I was part of my family I mean, biologically you could see that I was part of that family but I had profound feelings of not feeling a part of things and in other ways I did but as a young kid, that's probably my biggest memories and feeling not sure of myself and ugly and in, incompetent, things like that. So I, I had uh, then, I would say, certain levels of um, anxiety in sort of certain situations. Yeah, it's pretty common for people to have low self-esteem and you know, generally feeling that they're not fitting in. So were your siblings a help? Oh, that's another good question, Bill. Um, well, look, I tend to think that, you know, I was quite close to them in a way, although I shared a bedroom with my sister, my, my older sister, who's a couple of years older, and I actually found that very difficult because of the roles that kids play. She was sort of the, the, what they, uh, in adult children, what we call the um, hero child, and she was very competent and very socially adept and very academically adept and seemed sure of what she wanted and just got on with life. But I was, as I was sort of alluding to before, I was quite lost and I found that very difficult for me um, to, to be in that, to share that bedroom with someone who just seemed to have it all together and stuff. And my brother was in another part of the house. I, I, we, I thought we were really quite close as youngsters which is lovely. And um, it's not that I'm not close with my sister. I'm quite close with her. In fact, in lots of ways, emotionally, um, she's my strongest ally because she's quite willing to talk about these sorts of issues and has done some work on herself. Yeah, she's willing to, has been willing. So I can talk to her, but, you know, only up to a point and then stuff comes in, you know, and then it gets tricky. So you have to be a little careful. Yeah, in, in the family, everybody sees it differently. and. Uh, often, you know, my perspective isn't shared by my, my sisters and that becomes a point of, it's not sure if it's competition or conflict, it's, um, it just makes it difficult because you can't go past that point because it sort of implies that somebody's wrong or somebody's uh, done something wrong and it's, you know, it is difficult. Absolutely, and that's a whole big to topic on its own. We could easily do it now, we're just there. <laughs> yeah. My brother in particular doesn't want to talk about those issues and I have to respect that. Yeah. So what about school? Was school a release for you? School was tricky for me. I just didn't, I don't think I had the confidence. I don't think there was anything particularly wrong with my brains as such. I don't think I was stupid. And in some areas I did okay. I remember saying, I still have them, um, re sort of student reports from when, or school reports from when I was in particularly primary school. And teachers would say things like um, hanging out with the wrong kids and is much more capable than she shows in classes and ne needs to work harder and has difficult apply difficulty applying herself. And they're all things that have been totally true of my life, even to this day. I struggle with that sort of stuff. So, you know, my, my demons were, have been around a, a really long time. And so, yeah, school was difficult. Like I had, I went through a phase of my hair going really frizzy at one point. And um, I, I remember getting in trouble by the teachers and 
they didn't believe me that my hair was doing its own thing. That was in high school. So, and, and that was very difficult for me. And I tended to have a bit of a rebellious spirit. So, for example, in our summer, summer school uniform, we had pleats. So I took the skirt off and took the pleats out because, um, you know, when the wind blows, it, your dress goes up. And that was, I didn't like that. And, and I thought it was a bit more stylish too. And, I, and I, academically, I didn't do super well, but I got through up to a point, up to year, what they call year 11 now, form five, we used to say. And in that year, when I was 16, 17, my struggles were really starting to show. Earlier in high school, I started missing school by hiding in my cupboard I don't think any of my family know this but I used to hide in my cupboard and I'd go back to bed and I'd sleep all day so I just that's how I medicated myself I just slept all day and I don't think anyone ever knew I don't know how I got away with it but then by the time as I say I was 16 17 I was going home to friends houses and smoking pot a bit of drinking and stuff like that starting to hang out with boys a little bit so, and in fifth form or year 11, I, yeah, I was struggling and I said to myself, right, I'm just going to try and scrape through this year and just pass. Well, I missed the mark and I didn't pass. Uh, my father was very angry about that and gave me an ultimatum to either go back and repeat in the, the next year or basically leave home. And um, that was just what I needed to hear. It was red rag to a bull. I bumped up against him a lot. I was very rebellious with him. So I ran away from home at that point and um, stayed away for about three years, I think, and um, entered into a life of lots of smoking pot. In that time, I was, I was a funny mixture of a hippie and a disco chick. So um, during the week, I'd, I was working and everything, but I'd, during the week, I'd go to discos and, and drink a lot. And on the weekends... I'd be a hippie and hang out with my friends in the hinterland and smoke pot and take mushrooms and stuff. That would lead me up to my late teens that took me up to. So I was really getting into regular substance abuse, you'd have to say, at that point. And the whole time, though, the whole time they're feeling, you know, self-medicating and feeling really at the bottom of it, quite lost and had trouble focusing on a career or something like that, you know. So I guess it sounds like you had two sort of friendship groups. Kind of. Um, this was up north and it, it mixed quite well somehow. I don't know how, but it mixed quite well. There was a bit of mixing, but yeah. Okay. So what about relationships then? Did you, could you form good relationships with people? That's such a huge question, isn't it? Look, yeah, I wasn't bad at forming relationships. I had a very inappropriate first relationship with a male who turned out to be twice my age. It was someone I already knew. And I look back on it now and I realise that was, you know, it was some level of sexual abuse, really. So that's, that's one thing. Um, but in terms of just generally, yeah, I was very friendly, got along with people really well, I think. When I look back on, you know, several boyfriends and things, I can see that they were they weren't particularly healthy. They were nice enough people, um, but um, they weren't particularly healthy. And I can see that I I had difficulty in that area. And I guess, you know, to be really honest, I had relationships up until about the age of thirty. Then after that, I just I couldn't handle it anymore, and I just said, no, I'm not gonna. I'm not going to do this till I get my 
stuff together. <laughs> of course, you never get your stuff together. So not totally. So, you know, I ended up being single for a very long time and still am. So, yeah, that's a big topic. Yeah. So, you know, what was your first relationship to an alcoholic then? The first relationship would have been my parents who were alcoholics. And that was, I remember that starting at the age of nine uh, when my grandfather died. And I remember something cracking in the family when he died. I think he was very loved, particularly by my parents, my mother's father. And I remember things just starting to crack then and things got really wobbly and we'd be taken to the local pub. And, you know, when I was a little kid, I didn't think much of that really. I thought that was all right. I got my raspberry lemonade. But then as time wore on into my teens, unfortunately, my poor parents really, really, really struggled with the alcohol and um, at times became very unwell extremely unwell and um you know it was all that fear of when i came home from school that would would they be home would they what state would they be in there was at least one job lost there was another there was more employment that was almost lost there was um you know complete falling apart for a little while so something had to give this was this is over maybe i don't know see i have lots of gaps in my memory but um that went on for a few years until it got to the point where something really had to give it was completely out of control my father did go to a was taken off in an ambulance to a rehab and he quit cold turkey he said that in those days they did cold turkey which is very dangerous of course but he said that that scared him so much it scared him sober so he quit then but Unfortunately, mum struggled for several more years until she had a bit of an accident and that seemed to make a change. But there was no, you know, no one was in a program. It was just pure strong will willedness, I guess. Um, you know, the, the only downside to that is that no one talked about it. No one in our family talked about it. As a family, we didn't. And that created major issues for me personally because I was the one in the family that kept trying to go, hey, we've got an issue here. But, you know, there was the family system was, you know, I think there was just too much shame. Don't talk about it. Pretend like nothing's happening and we'll all get along with things. And eventually people did. But for me personally, there were, um, there were deep scars. And I think on top of probably being born with genes that were a bit on the sensitive side, um, I think the alcoholic stuff, um, the, the, the two, created some very deep uh, rifts and um, problems for me personally. Yeah, it's, a, it's hard for children growing up in that situation, that's for sure. Okay, awesome. We might take a break there. So, here you are. Too foreign for home. Too foreign for here. Never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong? And how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced by Yan. Close tonight. 
this is the Living Free Show on 3CR, 855 kilohertz on your AM dial and 3CR on digital radio. If you're interested in listening to one of our many podcasts, then either head to your preferred podcast platform, iTunes, Spotify, or just Google 3CR Living Free. On our show's webpage, you'll also find details about the Living Free Show and how to contact us. I'm talking with Rita, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alaron family groups. So Rita, before the break, we're talking about your mum and dad getting to the point where their alcoholism was a problem to them. But you mentioned that it was difficult to talk about it in the family, which it really is. So your brothers and sisters, could you talk to them about what was going on or again, was this a taboo subject? Look, I have very little memory of us talking. We may have, but I have very little, virtually no memory of it. Not to say we didn't, because I don't remember now. I might have blacked that out or something. But um, I, I think we were completely overwhelmed. I don't want to speak on their behalf, but I, that was my sense of it, that we were completely overwhelmed. And I think everyone was trying to just get on with life, just keep going. And I think if we unpack things, I mean, who knows? And I think we didn't know what to say. I mean, it was just like really overwhelming. And I think because we were kind of left on our own, I just think it was too tricky. And I think we wouldn't have known what to do. We, we just didn't know what to do. Eleanor was probably around then, um, but there was nowhere to go. And there was no one to talk to. There was one family friend, couple who helped us a little one day that I remember, um, and my poor old grandmother tried to help a bit, but the, no, my sense of it was that, uh, yeah, don't mention the war, just keep going, because maybe if we don't keep going, the whole thing, we're all going to fall apart. That was my sense of it. And I did try and speak to my father a couple of times, uh, um, and he, you know, up to a point, he might talk a little bit about it, but it was very difficult you know, it's the old adult-child stuff, don't talk, don't trust, don't, don't feel. Um, it was more about very difficult to talk about our feelings. That was the real red red zone, don't, just don't go there. And we all knew implicitly, you know, we knew without anyone having to say it that you don't talk about your feelings, it's just too difficult, too scary, and maybe things will just come undone if you do. But that was, yeah, as I say, that was kind of my sense of it. Yeah. Yeah, my experience with that was that if you let somebody else know that you had a weakness, it would be used against you and your family. I'm sure there was that. And, you know, the shame. There's a lot of shame. I think that's all tied up, up with that too. And, again, there was, uh, there was nowhere to no um, agencies or people to talk to. So you just kind of had to just keep it together and hope <laughs> that if you don't go there, it'll all get better somehow. Yeah, or it won't get worse, yeah. Yeah, and in our situation, in a way, it did get better because my parents sobered up and lived, in a way, the perfect life. I mean, that they, they didn't—they were clean and sober for the rest of their lives, more or less. There was a little bit of wobblies with my mum when she retired. When she, after Dad died, she wobbled a little bit. But um, yeah, and, that, and, that, and that's confusing. That was confusing for me, because the rest of my family got on with life. But I didn't. I just got jammed in there somehow. And still to this day, I'm working on 
my recovery as a result. I mean, I won't speak for my brother and sister, but I certainly struggled, seemed to struggle a lot more than they did. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of sensitive people in 12-step recovery. <laughs> Good point. So when your dad had stopped drinking and your mum was still drinking, did the family try and get her to stop? I certainly did. I used to stand toe-to-toe with her when she was completely gone and, you know, be quite hostile and try and get her to admit she was an alcoholic. Did that work? No, of course not. So I desperately tried to because I was desperately distressed and, again, you know, I was lost. I guess I desperately needed her to get better as well. I guess that's some of my sort of rescuing stuff. But, of course, that didn't work. Um, but, no, that I, as far as I know, I was the only one that I dragged. Oh, I feel terrible about this, but I dragged her to counselling one day when I was in a teenager, and it was just a total waste of time. I couldn't say it was just too difficult for Mum. It was just all too difficult. She needed to cope with things the way she needed to. Um, but I think I just too keenly felt her unhappiness and I felt like, well, well, you know, we can do something about this. But I couldn't see. I was a kid, you know, and I, I had no recovery under my, my belt. And I was completely wobbly myself. I couldn't see. I couldn't see all that stuff that I know now in from Al-Anon. I didn't know any of that then. So apart from that, I think that was the only kind of attempt that I remember. Although I did, um, I was in rehab myself. This is sort of a little bit later in life and, dragged my poor family off to a counselling session, which was ended in my father walking off really furious that someone was telling him how to run his family kind of thing, which they weren't doing, but he took it as an absolute affront. But I was really happy because I saw that someone could see the, the dynamics in the family and his controlling behaviour. But um, and that, So that's all that's what happened therapeutically in our family, yeah. But I did lots of therapy. Yeah, right, yeah. So could you talk to your friends about the family situation? That's a really good question. You know what? I cannot remember. I've got a funny feeling I kept it to myself. That's a very good question. Yeah, no, I have no memory of that. I've got a feeling I kept it to myself and just kept it all kind of bottled in. So when you look back, there was really no one. There was no one I spoke to. And in, in those days, I... I wasn't doing therapy, anything therapeutic either, so I really bottled it up. Yeah, most people can't spot an alcoholic. They can see somebody who drinks too much, but they don't really understand that distinction between drinking too much and being an alcoholic. And I remember telling my best friend at the time that my dad was an alcoholic, and he said, oh, no, he just drinks like my dad does. And I go, that, that was the end of it. Like, you know, he's normal. You know, what's wrong with you? Yes. And I think for us there was... Um, it was definitely alcoholism in our family. There's no two ways about that. We were, we, were, we were just kids, you know, and we were so overwhelmed. We didn't know what was going on. And there was incredible shame, lots and lots of shame about it, I think. So in a way, you know, it was the denial. In a way, some of us didn't want to know, except I took the other track and I wanted it all out. I wanted to talk about it and let's deal with this and stuff. So there was that kind of schism between me and the rest of the family, in a way. Do you think it was that 
feeling of over-responsibility that you should be able to do something? Absolutely. And again, um, as a kid, you, you don't know any better. And still to this day, that's still a bit of an issue for me. Um, but the, the more I see into it, the, the more I, I can see how I'm doing that. But it's a very natural response for a kid to, you know, do something. We've got to, you know, the, these people are falling apart um, and um, there's just no one around to help us. There was no one around to help. So you're it. And, uh, you know, we did all the pouring alcohol down sinks and hiding bottles. We did all that classic sort of stuff. But I think the tension it creates in you is um, doesn't go away easily. You kind of end up taking it with you. And, yeah, you do become a bit overly responsible for other people. Yeah. And a bit less responsible for yourself, you know. Yeah, you've taken the eyes completely off yourself and it's, it's all about the other person's behaviour, uh, not my reaction to it. Yeah. So what about work? Was it a, Did it affect your working life? Yeah, I had, I mean, I just had trouble focusing on a career, on, on my education. I had uh, six attempts at the university. <laughs> I did my HSC or VCE when I was 25, and it was a specific program for older women. I never got my undergrad, but I, I got a postgrad. So I, you know, I did something, but that was, it's just been a long, long struggle. And work-wise, I've had lots of, lots and lots of different sorts of jobs, um, sometimes lasting a while, sometimes lasting not so long. A lot of them very, uh, what's a nicer word than menial, you know, just sim simple jobs that, you know, I, I, could only cope with because emotionally I was a bit all over the place and um, and at times on and off in my life I've, I've, I was in my 20s basically I spent most of my 20s as an intravenous drug user so that you know that interfered with my work life and interfered with my education so it was much later in life that I I got my education and started settling down and um, getting on with things a bit more. Yeah. So did you have any difficulty getting off the drugs? Kind of. Um, so it was basically from the age of 22 to 30, I was an IV user. I see this is my introduction to my higher power. Someone came into my life who was a very, very spiritual person. And I worked with them for a little bit and they ended up running a, a detox and stuff. But um after a few attempts, I did do detox two or three times, I think. Always busted. I walked out with, with one rehab with heroin in my pocket that one of the other residents had given me before they were going to court. So, you know, um, I ended up working at that place in the end. Yeah, so there was a few attempts, as there often is, you know, that cycle of um, relapsing and going forward. And then it was this this sort of spiritual session I had with this person working with my higher power that, that was the day I knew I'd be okay. I knew in my DNA I was going to be okay and I was going to let go of this demon. But it took about two years of going round and round and round about it. And then when I hit 30, I gave up cigarettes, I gave up alcohol, I gave up heroin, I gave up the lot. And then my life became more based on a higher power. And at that point from detox, I learned about the 12-step programs and from another person actually I knew about the 12-step program. So that was my late 20s. And I did a bit of Al-Anon. I sat in on a little bit of AA, and uh, that was where I found um, adult children as well. But it was definitely my higher power that got me to that point.
for God as we understand God. So what was it like then to find a recovery program that helped you to understand what the problem was, that it wasn't your willfulness, it was your, I guess it was your thoughts, the fact that you couldn't, you, you couldn't go against your first thought really. Um, can you just clarify that a little bit? Yeah, I, I guess um, a, as a child of an alcoholic, that whenever whenever something happened at home, um, there was always this, I must do something and I must do this uh, to make the situation, to, to stop it deteriorating. And when I got into Al-Anon, I realised that I really didn't have to do anything and that all I could, I could, I could sort of watch it. I could watch and wait rather than actually take action. And it was understanding that that first thought was just, the first thought always comes, but you don't have to act on it. I always felt responsible that I had to do something. And in Alan, I learned that I didn't actually have to do anything. I could just wait. Well, I'm learning that. And I'm still learning that because I think I have probably quite strong impulses because that impulse, you know, that thinking impulse is, is um, a way of medicating ourselves, really. Then we don't have to feel. We can act and we can think, but we don't have to feel. Um, but in Al-Anon, like, I, I did a little bit in my late 20s and, and stopped using and everything when I was about 30. But then I left the, the fellowship and went off and um, was seeking from a higher power at that point. So I looked into all sorts of other things and I did lots of therapy. I've done lots of therapy, probably enough for my, my whole family, not that they'd want it. And so I went seeking for many years and struggled, had probably a couple of nervous breakdowns of different sorts, lots of panic, lots of anxiety, depression, isolating, all the classic telltale signs that we find in um, people in the, in the fellowship. And um, it wasn't till I had hit another bottom about four or five years ago that a friend came down from Sydney and said, um, we were just going to catch up and have a cup of tea. And this person said, well, let's, let's go and do a meeting. And, you know, I'd done one intermittently over the years in, in between there. And I went, oh, really? All right. Well, I was, I was just looking forward to a cup of tea. But, yeah, that's fine. Let's do that. You know, and <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't left since. So it took me a long time to really settle in, in the program. Maybe it is my willfulness. I'm trying to use my willfulness for good and not for bad. Um, but that's a big ship to turn around, I have to admit. And I don't want to lose that, but I want to use it in the right, the right way. But um, I'm very much still, still learning that. And little, you know, I get little insights here and there, but that's a, a learning curve for me to stay with my feelings and not my thoughts. Yes. Okay. Well, so you might take another break there. What we're dealing with here is a total lack of respect for the law. Tune in to Done by Law. An informal and irreverent look at the law. Critical insights and analysis from diverse community perspectives. Done by Law, 6pm Tuesdays.
This is The Living Free Show on 3CR, on digital radio, and live streaming on 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming. And today I'm talking with Rita, and we're talking about recovery from the family disease of alcoholism with the help of Alan and family groups. So Rita, before the break, we are talking about getting back into fellowship after a while. So what, what was it like to come back after so long? Yeah, it was really interesting. I came back as many people do, really hitting a bottom. I mean, I was virtually having a bit of a nervous breakdown. I mean, I know there's probably a better term for it than that, but that's certainly what it felt like, a lot of panic. And I had just had a huge amount of change in my life and I just wasn't coping with all that change and loss. So it was really interesting coming back because I'd already had a bit of, you know, history with, with, the, with the fellowship and I re- absolutely respected it and stuff. But um, coming back, I had a stronger sense of self, I think, which was probably what I needed. And I was in right from that first meeting, I was in. I don't have much to do with that friend anymore, but I I am still in the program and I've made lots of new friends and stuff, which is nice. But it was just, oh, you know, I think it's probably what a lot of people feel when they come come to meetings. Um, You feel like you're coming home, you feel heard. Yeah, you feel like someone's actually hearing you. And I didn't really feel like that in my family as much as I tried and probably very unskillfully tried to speak my truth in the family. But it didn't want to be heard either. And my, I think my personal issues were quite intense. I think it was just too intense for people. And I, I appreciate that more these days. But I was very, I was just very distressed. But I love that... There's something soothing about going to a meeting. I feel my nervous system gets soothed. And I, what I really, maybe the most, I don't know, is that, well, besides the fact that people kind of get me and I get people there, is that we're all on the same playing field and we're all equal. And when each person speaks, no one talks over them. And for many, many adult children, that's a huge issue, like being spoken over so you know when you get spoken over that that person's actually not listening and there's lots of issues around not being listened to in my family of origin I think so yeah I found that incredibly healing incredibly soothing I can talk long enough that I get to hear my own thoughts and I get to sort through stuff without without anyone actually giving me any solutions or any advice and I, I really, really love that about the um, fellowship. And I really love um, that it's based on a higher power. I don't think I'd be there if it wasn't based on a higher power because that's bigger than all of us. So there's no one in the fellowships that's better than anyone that knows more or whatever. It's none of that stuff that our, our higher power does. And I love that. There's a whole bunch of stuff. You you know, you, with being an adult child, you, you, I do have to learn to um, reparent myself as we speak about in adult child stuff. That's not an easy, always an easy task. But, you know, you in, in the fellowship, it's, it's real life too. You bump into people you might not like or whatever, but you might come to love them, as we say in, in the fellowship. And I love that. I love that I don't have to like them, but I can respect them and, and not be judgmental of them. And, and, and surprisingly enough, I might, they might say something that I actually really need to hear. So I love that. <laughs> I love that sense of humility that, you know, it's not easy to be humble when you've, you've kind of lost that trait as a kid, I think. 
Um, so I really love that. And the other thing I really, there's lots of things, but another thing I really like about the fellowship is that there's not much around these days because I've looked, I've, as many people in the fellowship have looked outside and done therapy and groups and classes and stuff, but not many places talk about, you know, building your character and from, from your core, from your very core. And I really, really like that um, because out there in the big white world, especially now, there's a, there's a lot of, you know, it's about me and no one else. But the fellowship really teaches you how to be, I think, a good human, a good human being. And that's a lifelong journey, of course. But I'm really, I'm really attracted to that. It's about, about your character and humility and God. Yeah, I think the other thing is that you learn something from every, everybody in a meeting, whereas, you know, if you go to a seminar or a therapist, you're expecting it to be a one-way thing, but it's people get insights from other people just by sharing their experience. They go, oh, yeah, I was like that. And, yeah, I think I could apply that in my situation. And, and it's really up to the individual to take responsibility to, to listen and to apply those things because one of the things that I found was that I had all these choices. I could do all these different things, but I didn't think I could. I didn't think I was allowed to. And just, you know, people saying, well, you know, it's, it's your choice. You know, if you want to live in that situation and it's up to you, it's, you, know, you, you can change it anytime you like. And people go, oh, can I? Yeah, no, it's like, yeah, you can. It's, it's really up to you. You're, you're in control of your life, but you just keep handing over control to other people all the time. And it's sort of understanding that dynamic uh, of how alcoholism works and alcoholism and family disease is about moulding the family into this don't talk, don't, don't disrupt. And some people can cope with that and other people just go crazy. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, um, it's a gentle program, but it's, it's, it's very real. Like you can't, <laughs> you can't escape your own demons. You... You get faced with them all the time. But with lots of love and lots of gentleness and lots of input, it's the perfect... I mean, I, as an adult child, I see um, in Al-Anon, I see the program, as some people do, as the good enough parent. You know, the program, it, it'll never force me to do anything. I have a free will, which you were sort of alluding to. They're always there for me. And they'll never judge me. And I'm free to do whatever I want. And as... as <laughs> slightly rebellious person that I was that's just like perfect so I've come to that come to that place where I've gone ah oh, I'm actually free I don't I don't have to do any of this but um if I do Elanon's there for me completely and unconditionally so it's that it's a reparenting in that way as well as well as I've got to do that for myself yeah and as you were talking about before just sharing your story or your experience what allowed me to put it into perspective I could see my part in it whereas before it was always someone else's fault you started realizing that yes I'd, I'd put myself in that situation and that thing had happened rather than it had just happened this is the number one thing for me because I spent my life being very angry about my parents even though I love them um, I didn't believe they loved me. I think I was a difficult child. In fact, they told me I was a difficult child, both of them. After I kind of forced it out of them, that's another story. <laughs> but that is, in a way, it's, it's right up there with the top five things and the, the program being about the higher power. And that is not easy to change. 
that is really not easy to change. But when I have seen that, wait a minute, everyone else is actually relatively happy. I'm the one that's going through all this angst and gnashing my teeth, uh, shitty with everything and everyone and, and, and it's not fair and you know, look how my life's, all that sort of stuff. Yeah, that's, um, that's huge and that's, um, that's not easy to, to turn around. But gently, gently um, with Al-Anon, I'm surprised that how much I've changed in that way. I don't know how much other people have seen it. I suspect, I suspect they do. But, oh, the freedom of that. The freedom of that's been amazing. And, and, and I mean, I, I need to do more. But I know now that that's possible. Whereas, uh, I mean, I was just so full of angst and oh, it was just it was dreadful. But, yeah, that's changing. That's a miracle. Yeah. So how has it changed your life now? You know, what, what, what are the differences that you notice? Well, that partly, I'm, I'm less kind of grumpy and angry. You know, if there was a 12-step program for grumpy and angry and a bit miserable, that would be the one for me. I could start something like that up. I'm more what they call um, emotionally sober. I've got a way to go. But, um, you know, we can be as us people who um, are around the alcoholic can become as drunk on our emotions as they are on alcohol. So I have to, and, I, and I've been very drunk on my emotions and I've been tapping into that internal, what we call the internal drugstore to try and medicate ourselves as well um, and get off on the feelings and stuff. So that's been a big thing that, that's been um, turning around and I have more peace and I am getting more focused and more able to actually get get on with my life in a sense you know um get on with my career and um my personal life and just do stuff um but the big part of a big part of that is doing service for me that's what's really turbocharged my recovery that's been incredible like honestly instant pretty much instantly the moment i took up several i've had you know a few probably three or four different positions and instantly I did it, something came good in my life, like a little miracle. And, you know, you hear the stories like that all the time. That just blows me away. And those things have given me hope because I've spent a fair bit of my life feeling quite hopeless and that I'll never amount to anything and I'll never be happy and, um, you know, as I say, again, full of angst. Um, but those things have given me a lot of hope and they're proof because I think I needed proof <laughs> that something could change. And so, that proof needed to be something happen, something good happened to me uh, because I've pretty, been pretty good at fending good things off. Um, but Alanon's helped me to bring my little ball down a little bit and allow something good to come in. And that specifically happened um, not just with service, but that really noticed it with doing service. Yeah, one of the things that I found when I came into Al-Anon was this feeling that I thought the situation was hopeless. And somebody explained to me that the situation isn't hopeless, it's the attitude is one of hopelessness, that it was possible for me to have that attitude change from one of hopelessness to one of hope. And that is just believing that it can improve. But the hopelessness bit was that I couldn't improve it. But the hope part is that it can be improved in spite of me, in spite of my involvement, 
And so what about that for you? Did you find that just having access to this resource of people gave you hope? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's incredible relief from hearing my story and having people hear my story, you know, being heard, having my story be heard. And in that relief, my wall starts coming down and the world starts looking a bit brighter. Because before that, before I, you know, get heard and, and hear other people and realise, oh, I'm not on my own, I'm not the only one that's suffering, I was so wrapped up in the misery that nothing could get in. You know, just nothing could get in. But with Alan on, it's like I'm slowly lifting my head and I'm looking up now instead of down a lot of the time. I'm seeing possibilities. And that's, that's you know, honestly, it's just the simplicity of being heard, especially for an adult child, because as an adult child, your brain does not work properly because this stuff was happening. The behaviour of an alcoholic, the, the alcoholic behaviour starts way before the drinking gets out of control. We know that people's brains don't fully develop until uh, early 20s, mid-20s. So as a kid, you know, you, my brain was developmentally very disrupted. And um, it actually, you know, it takes, a bit, it, takes, it takes a bit of love to love the brain back into, into some happiness. And, and, and again, as you say, the hope and just feeling, and feeling safe in the world again. Yeah. The other thing I think of looking at other people is this, this overwhelming feeling of being terminally unique, that you're such a unique person. There's nobody else like you. And you go to a program like Alan on Family Groups and you find there's all these other people who've got the same feelings and stuff. So did you find that, that just being in the company of people helped you? Absolutely, because don't forget what I was feeling as a little kid was not a part of things. I, you know, to the point where I thought I'd been put on this planet by an alien ship. Now, that's pretty, that's fairly extreme for a kid to, when I look like them, you know, although in lots of ways I'm kind of different, but I obviously was biologically connected to them. So, yeah, belonging again, and belonging is such a big part of healing trauma. It's a huge, it's probably maybe the biggest part of healing trauma. So, you know, and people often talk about the fellowship as kind of their second family or their emotional family. You, I've sort of lost my track of thought, but <laughs> what was your question again? Oh, we're talking about being terminally unique and just realising that, I, that you're no longer terminally unique, you're just one of a lot of people. Yes, and you know what? That can make it hard to let go of being unique too. That, that can be a little bit of, what? I'm like everyone else. But when you can relax with that and go, yeah, but I'm still me and I still am unique. I'm just not terminally unique. And the other, the other part of that, the other adage we talk, you know, it's spoken about in adult child stuff is um, terminally serious. And um, I've got a big, big dose of that. There's been times when I um, haven't always felt like that, but sometimes that can, that can happen from doing too much therapy too. You get terminally serious and you get terminally go down the rabbit hole of, you know, your stuff and other people's stuff but yeah terminally serious is another one and that's something you, you learn in the fellowship is to and actually have a bit of a laugh and you i think you can see people are getting better when they can when i can firstly not take my stuff it's not so dreadfully serious and then you know after a while i can actually look at it a bit more lightheartedly it's a sign of healing yeah and it's really good seeing other people get better 
become more confident and you know realize that the world's not a dreadful place it's just the way i looked at it a lot of the time yeah and the attitude one's an interesting one that you mentioned before it's only a matter of and we got quotes in the fellowship about you know it's only a matter of how you look at stuff and when i first read that stuff i went you've got to be kidding it's like everyone else's attitude is the problem i didn't sort of had that formed thought but that's what i felt like you know everyone else needs it because i'm struggling so much and bloody blah, blah which um, you know, I still fall into that trap. So what what now for you as far as, you know, looking forward? Because a lot of uh, stuff about fellowship is is not not planning things but having, a, I guess, a, a positive outlook rather than a, a fixed plan of what you have to do. And um, so are you more relaxed about the future? Yeah, I'm much more relaxed about the future and I'm, I'm letting go. It's a big thing in the... In the, in the in life as well is to you know stop white knuckling life and kind of open up the palms and and let god hold your hand that's the way i sort of look at it so yeah i and um you know i i've um, missed out on a lot in life i didn't have children i never got married um do have a bit of a career but i've missed out on an awful lot and, and that's a whole thing in itself you know the grieving process of all the missed opportunities but I am letting go because I missed out on so much. I felt very um, frenetic about I've got to catch up and I've got to do this and I've got to do that. And it was pretty full on. But I'm getting much better at, well, being in the moment is one way of putting it, but just relaxing, just relax and trust, trusting life, you know, trusting life itself. And, uh, you know, I've got a ways to go, of course, but. Um, I'm getting a little, little bit better allowing life to come to me rather than, um, you know, trying to strangle the life out of life sort of thing. Um, and I've got lots of plans and I've got lots of stuff I want to do. Um, I've got to decide. I can't do them all. That's my only issue at the moment. I want to do them all. But, yeah, I'm feeling much more positive. And also positive about getting stuff done. It's going to take work but also more relaxed about letting go and being and getting more out of what I do have. Looking forward to continuing with the program. Yeah. Okay. Uh, if anybody would like to find out more about Allen and Family Groups, uh, you can phone them on 1300 252 666 uh, or you can go online at allenon.org.au for more information about meetings or phone contacts throughout Australia. Uh, that's a, about all we've got time for today. And so I'd like to thank Rita for joining me and sharing her Allen and Family Group's recovery experience with us. Thank you. Thanks, Bill. And thanks for your great questions. That's okay. Um, I hope you'll be able to listen again next week when we'll be talking about recovery from gambling addiction and we'll be joined by a member of Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay tuned now for more, more Radical Radio on 3CR.